Well, a good Wednesday morning to you, and I want to welcome you to Wheat Among the Tares, our program here every Wednesday morning from the studios of Gethsemane Global Radio in Lexington, South Carolina. I appreciate you joining us here this morning for this broadcast. We have one of the, in my opinion, one of the best broadcasts that we're going to be have done for a while, and it's not I'm negating the others Um, But we are going to be dealing with a subject this morning, and if you've looked at our Facebook page, we've already posted some things concerning this. So I want you to be aware of the fact that this is going to be one of those subjects that is going to be somewhat controversial in a lot of people's minds, and that's okay because what we're trying to do is settle some things with regard to the subject of revival and revivalism. And, uh, and I want to welcome back to the studio this morning our historian, and I, you, I like to use that term, uh, Brother Carl Baker, who is well known to us here on Wheat Among the Tears. Brother Carl, welcome to the studio this morning. Delighted to be back, brother. Brother, and, I, and I'm glad health-wise that you have been uh, blessed to be able to sit here in the studio with us as well this morning. We want to talk about this matter of revival and revivalism and it's all stemming brother carl out of some recent events that have happened uh, that we've seen in the news in the last couple of months here uh, about uh, a revival quote a revival that's happened and uh, and we got to talking about this and and i thought you know we kind of bounced some things back and forth but one of the things that we started talking about was what about previous revivals and specifically one that's maybe better known in recent history and that would be the welsh revival of 1905 and i do want to uh, remind folks that if you aren't familiar if they if they aren't familiar with uh christian history and and history as a whole when it comes to the matters of revival, then there's a lot of information online that they can go search and find out. But we want to address particularly uh, the Welsh Revival, and we're actually going to back up just a little bit, Brother Carl, and we're going to deal with some influences of the Welsh Revival, and that that deals with the Keswick Doctrine, and uh, which is an interesting subject in and of itself. I know that when we before we went on the air, we were talking about the doctrine of the Keswick Convention and how that originated in Keswick, England in the late 1800s. Tell us first of all, Brother Carl, as far as the influence of Keswick, what their doctrine was a little bit, and then we can kind of segue into uh, this matter of the Welsh Revival. The, the Keswick Convention... The first one that takes place is in uh, 1874, uh, a conference kind of, and then it went into a convention. And then after it was held in 75, it was held on a yearly basis. Mm-hmm. And um, the theology and, and, the re, re, and the rise of the development of the, uh, the doctrines and 
theology, uh, de- dealing around salvation, uh, uh, eternal security, and things like that, such as that. It was it, it came together to try to unify, unify churches and faiths and belief around those doctrines and everything else. Where that it would it was basically a, the first ecumenical movement of the Protestant faith. If you really wanted to know the truth, it was it was a get together of a movement that they wanted of the Spirit of God around the churches to unite them, and in that desire, um, it, it is noteworthy that um, the Keswick Convention first went to explain. Actually, its foundation was found within the uh, what we call the Second Great Awakening. The fruits of that. Uh, in its foundation, as far as its presentation of its theology and doctrines, uh, and that 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 um, second great awakening was uh, brought to America uh, out of New York by a man by the name of Charles Finney. And Charles Finney, if you read uh, his Institutes of Religion, Religion, Theology, and such as that, as far as his writings are concerned, and all, uh, Charles Finney was not a Bible believing Christian as you and I see one today, where doctrines come strictly from the Scripture and the interpretation of the Scriptures are self-defined. Uh, he, he began to define the Scriptures in a not just a theological way, but also, also in, a, in a way that uh, was what through reason. And so uh, what... Um, what you find out, let me, let me just read you just a little excerpt as far as the, the Keswick history here uh, and where it got it. It says this right here. It says uh, in this, uh, this article I'm reading, it says, Asus Mahan, leader of the Oberton Perfectionalism. You, uh, the head of the Oberton College in, in New York was um, uh, Charles Finney. They said that, uh, it says in the article here, uh, as a Keswick, uh, antecedent to the Oberlin perfectionism of Asa Mahan and his uh, his mentor Charles Finney were indeed important to the rise of the Keswick system, and were recognized by the Keswicks the Keswick as essential historic background for the genesis of their doctrine. Thus, in 1872, Mahan moved to England and directly influ- influenced the Keswick movement by his leadership in the Oxford and Brighton conferences that immediately preceded the first Keswick Convention. Mahan's books were widely propagated in higher life circles so that Keswick writers often mention or quote Asa Mahan and Charles Finney. Indeed, none of the controversial meetings at Oxford was more interesting than the underwrite guidance of Asa Mahan. Well, the Carl... These men um, and the doctrines of Keswick, the Keswick Convention, basically pushed, if I can use that word, a two-pronged situation with regard to the, the individual. And I'm talking about the method, the salvation of a soul. Number one, the justification of a person uh, through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then number two the sanctification, and they believe that to be a, a second work of grace. Right. It had to be something that was, it was a, a different situation to the point that that, quote, second work of grace would eventually lead to 
a sinless perfection right. in the individual. Nothing could be further from the truth except for the fact that truth is taken there and then you weave some falsehood through that and it ends up being deception. Charles Finney taught this. If you look up at Charles Finney in his theology, he tells you this right here, that Jesus Christ did not die uh, in a in such a way, vicariously give it, uh, give his death, uh, like it says in First Second Corinthians chapter five, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, right. that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, Charles Finney did not believe that literally. Charles Finney believed this right here that Christ more or less gave us a way to see how we can live and choose that life in such a way that we, through our spirits, would would appease God uh, and his desire for, uh, uh, for righteousness in such a way that the sanctifying part of the, of the redemption of Christ would, would be accomplished by our behavior changing by choice. He did not believe that in what Romans chapter 4 tells you, he did not believe that in Romans chapter 4 that righteousness was imputed by faith. He believed that righteousness was obtained through belief. And what you did is this right here. You believed it, you accepted it, and you changed. And the new birth was not a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit of God coming within you and joining itself with your spirit, thereby making one spirit, as it says in right, Corinthians. Right. But rather, rather, it was a submission of yourself to God's will. That's why, the, like the charismatic movements and assembly of gods, and, and not only that, but Church of Christ and a lot of others, they believe this right here, that you're saved initially by your faith in Jesus Christ, but you must follow through this obedience, the moral obedience of the law, right. to keep your salvation Finney believed this right here, that if you sinned after you had, even after you had accepted Jesus Christ, you're saved, that sin made you just as separated from God until you got it right and repented of it. You were just, you, you re-entered the same state that you were as a sinner before you got saved. I lost salvation. Yes. Yeah. That's <clears throat> what it is. And, and the, uh, conversely, um, that, as Finney described, and obviously it was in, embraced by the Keswick situation, yes. that they believed in a progressive yes. uh, salvation or sanctification yes. to the point that, and, and I've read in here, and I'm holding in my hand right now, a, uh, it's, it's sort of a doctrinal thesis that was written by the na- a man by the name of John Royal. And what he does is he takes to task, number one, the Keswick doctrine, mm-hmm. And then number two, he eventually gets into how Evan Roberts, who was the uh, the star, if you would, of the Welsh revival, how that he, uh, as an ideological young man, uh, totally embraced this this manner of second work of grace. You had to have the baptism and that sinless perfection. Revival, what number one revivals are, are they? There can be two definitions. Number one, a true revival, or number two, a uh, number one rather a true revival. Number two, a seemingly revival, and there's worlds of difference between those, as we well know. 
Number one, what are the fruits of those? Uh, uh, what's the fruits of each? Number one, a true revival brings about a true repentance and a repentant heart in a man to the point that his life is changed. And it's not through a, quote, second work of grace. It's not through a progressive sanctification that he is trying to attain, attain, attain. It is actually the work of the Spirit of God working in his heart. The Bible is very plain about the greatest man that that instituted faith as an example to this world. And that was our father Abraham. That's right. And Romans chapter 4 makes it emphatic. He believed God, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Therefore, righteousness was imputed by that faith that he had that what God said he was able also to perform. Amen. Not being weak in faith, but you know what? Believing that what, what God had promised, he was able to perform. And what does it say at the end of chapter 4? And this was not written for Abraham's sake alone, but ours also. If we believe on him who raised up Christ Jesus from the Lord, who died for our sins, but was raised again for our justification. It's imputed. There's no place for righteousness to be imputed within these doctrines of these second blessings or third blessings. You see, the second work of grace is a sanctification. But watch this. Then uh, if it's sanctification, then notice that it goes even farther. It keeps going further. Why? Because one is the work of the Spirit, and the other is the work of the flesh. Exactly. And when you work it with the flesh, you mark it down. What takes place of the movement of the Spirit in that which is truth, the work of the flesh will find in the work of a man's emotions. And that's really where we're driving to here. If you're just joining us this morning, we're talking about the subject of revivals and revivalism. And uh, we're talking to Brother Carl Baker, who is our resident historian when it comes to these matters. And um, we've taken a little bit of time, Brother Carl, already in order to maybe lay a little bit of a background as far as Keswick doctrine, how that came from Charles Finney and Asa Mahan and these men in the 1860s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And that, because of the fact that doctrine so permeated that second great awakening and kind of came out of that, and and we've talked about it before, but this whole matter if you would, of this, this thinking, this uh, second work of grace type thing and how it's, how it's foisted upon the church in the latter 1800s and in the early 1900s, it really brought about um, a seemingly a falsehood, if you would, that the churches readily accepted because of the fact that uh, at this time the ASV uh, or is it the revised version of 1901, 18, Philip Schaff? 1881, and in 1901 81, was the American, American Standard, Standard Version. American Standard Version. That's right. So these, you can almost go back and you can look and see um, not a progression, but a digression when it comes to the matters of the Spirit of God as far as what the churches are accepting. And as a result of that, they're starting to steer away from the true doctrines, and they are starting to embrace, as you said, 
the emotional and fleshly aspects of uh, the operation of the church. And more and more, we can see men thrust to the front as opposed to the Spirit of God and conviction of men's sins and men living holy lives. You find an eradication of Bible doctrine into the uprising of rationalism within the faith itself that takes the place of doctrine. When you get to the Welsh Revival, certain figureheads uh, are the foundation of it, like Joseph Jenkins, Seth Joshua, who in line rise up a man that they want to be a common man, not of theology, but someone that they can move by the motions of the things that they preach and the things that they're, they're claiming gifts that they have. And that man winds up being Evan Roberts. And whenever he's put in that position, you find this to be so, that all you have to do is study the life of Evan Roberts, and you'll see exactly the deception that was used to formulate this Welsh revival of only one year. I'm going to read you something here, and it's just a, a, a paragraph or, or paragraph and a half. But it says this, it says, shortly after the 1904 Summer Keswick Convention, which was held in southeast Wales, something extraordinary occurred. In the fall of that same year, Wales experienced a monumental religious awakening that shook the nation, turning its coal mines into sanctuaries, shutting down its saloons and brothels, and even canceling its scheduled sporting events. That all sounds wonderful. Mm -hmm. It does. Yes. In the midst of all this activity, a young mystic named Evan Roberts arose to national prominence News stories about him of the revival meetings he presided over, presided over rather, dominated the Welsh press for several months. After six months of intensive labor, Roberts withdrew from his ministry efforts and an emotionally and physically broken man. He was invited to a retreat to recover, intended to be a recuperative stay of one week. Mysteriously, he did not return to public ministry or his beloved country of Wales for nearly 25 years, not even for his own mother's funeral. That's right. Now, you look, you look back at these things, and these are things that are documented in history. It's not that we're trying to take this to task and trying to throw cold water on something that maybe people have esteemed in the past, but at the same time, Facts are facts when it comes to the matters of things that can be wholly discovered by, you know, research, that type of thing. So what happened with this man, Evan Roberts, Brother Carl, who was thrust, as you said, into the preeminence and in, in, uh, uh, the forefront of this by men that saw this young man as, uh, a, a means by which he could they he could be the quote face of this, and yet ends up being an absolutely broken man. Uh, and there's more we want to talk about this, but how does this happen? After reading the the history 
and uh, and cross-referencing um, many editors as far as those who wrote about the life of Evan Roberts. I have come to the conclusion of this right here, that Evan Roberts, was he was emotionally unstable from the very start. Let me give you some reasons why I believe that. I believe that no doubt that Jenkins and, and uh, Joshua uh, had great influence on him because of the constant confrontation with a baptism with the Spirit that kept being referred to like the book of Acts that was constantly on him where he was looking and seeking for that deepness that they themselves expressed. And so in so doing, you'll find that he went through much labor and prayer and, uh, and, and much self-denial and everything else to obtain this so-called breaking, this breaking that he was looking for that they, they said, you know, that needed to take place. And when it did, it came into an emotional outpouring of, uh, of his being in such a place that he misinterpreted that Instead of, of a, uh, actually, some, to in some ways a breakdown, uh, to actually a breaking where he thought he was actually being broken from above. And when he did that, it followed his ministry. Because, because Brother Blake, it didn't take but just two or three months uh, for him to be involved with the fact of this right here, where the, there was no preaching hardly any preaching at all of the word in his in his ministry it was all emotional things that he was looking for where he was looking for people to uh, uh start uh crying uh, uh, uh giving testimony and such as that where there would be the word of god wasn't being preached in many many meetings never involved in the preaching it was singing it was praying crying and testimonies and you know what it big and it was it was so it was um it was so supported by the women who also were influenced by jenkins and also joshua mm-hmm. in such a way that you know what these women got into the ministry themselves and this this is this is a ministry now where that as far as uh uh the Commandments of the scriptures that the woman's not to teach nor hold positions as far as the church is concerned and such as that. All those things were thrown out of the window. These women became evangelists themselves. Yes, they, they did. They became evangelists. Yep. Yep. And, that, and that's where the real evangelism began out of that Keswick movement. Not that Finney didn't help promote it through Oberlin College either. Because if you'll notice, his, his college, it didn't make any difference whether it was a woman in, uh, for the ministry or whether it was integrated college. It was first integrated college in, in, in the country. Not, not that we were against integration, but the point of this right here, what happened was it became a totally unification of those things that the Scripture denied. They accepted those things as long as it it was part of the movement. Correct. And it was a movement. When you say revival, brother... You're talking about something where something God moves a man and there's another movement that man tries to move God. And you know something? The fruits of it are just like the garden. 
God doth know in the day that you eat thereof, then ye shall be as gods. That's right. And you know what? Yep. And that's exactly what happened. Men became and held the position of it. Let me show you the instability. If I can just have a moment. I, I wrote, got some notes here on uh, uh, Evan Roberts on, on the fact of his instability once he got into the ministry to show you what it was like. Uh, he started seeing visions. And, start, and next thing you know, the visions and the things that he is doing uh, are going to hold precedence in all of his meetings. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he never even preached. He would just go and sit down. He was asking one meeting of, of a, a conference where preachers uh, of notoriety were actually brought him in there to uh, discuss with him concerning the movement of the Spirit and everything else. And he was, he was so given to silence in himself, and he was so much in his own personal world that was so isolated from the reality of the of the ministry Amen, itself yes. that they said could you give would you, would you give the people a word and he says yes he said christ and that's all he said they never said another word the whole meeting and they were so disappointed that he didn't take the opportunity to present christ in such a way that evangelism truly does so i i was re as in my research this right here Little did they know that within nine months, the desire would be fulfilled when he began to pray to be broken. He said, Evan claimed to have seen the Savior and his father, with his father, a check with this figure that he was ready to honor as its payment. It had $100,000 on the check. So he took it as a sign that Jesus was going to use him to save 100,000 souls. And they say, by consequence, that he, you know, that's what he was looking for, and that's what he what he tried to achieve. He says he had more visions, which encouraged him to believe it would happen. He saw a lighted candle, and behind it, the rising sun. He felt the interpretation was that the present blessings were only as a lighted candle compared with the blazing glory of the sun that was to come. Later, all whales would be flooded with revival glory. Another time, he saw a hand coming out of the moon, as if it directed him look around him as far as Wales was concerned. Uh, he would rise from his bed in the de depth of the night, usually 1 o'clock in the morning, and go out of the house to watch it and pray. One night he saw it when, 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 and when he went out with Sidney Evans, a friend of his, who asked him why he was staring at the moon. Before he could tell him, Sidney saw it too. It was an arm that re seemed to be reaching out from the moon down toward Wales. He was in no doubt revival was on its way. When interviewed during the revival, the uh, one revival, the interviewer asked how he began to, uh, to take his work. He said, for a long, long time, I was much troubled in my soul, in my heart, by thinking over the failure of Christianity. Oh, it seemed such a failure, such a failure. I prayed and prayed, but nothing seemed to give me any relief. But one night, after I'd been in great distress praying about this, I went to sleep, and at 1 o'clock in the morning, suddenly I was wakened up out of my sleep, and I found myself unspeakable joy and awe in the very presence of Almighty God. And for the space of four hours, I was privileged to speak face-to-face -face with Him as a man speaks face-to-face -face with a friend. At five o'clock, it seemed to me as if it was a, uh, uh, as I as if I returned back to earth. Were you not dreaming? The interviewer asked. No, I was wide awake, and it was not only that morning, but every morning for three or four months. 
Always, I enjoyed four hours of that wonderful communion with God. I cannot describe it. I felt it, and it seemed to change all my nature, and I saw things in a different light, and I knew that God was going to work in the land, and not this land only, but in all the world. Listen to what he says here. It went on all the time until I had to go uh, to Newcastle to the Bible college to prepare for the ministry. I dreaded to go for fear I would lose these four hours with God every morning, but I had to go, and it happened as I feared. For a whole month, he came no more, and I was in darkness, and my heart became as a stone. Even the sight of the cross brought no tears to my eyes. So it continued until, to my great joy, he returned to me, and I had again the glorious communion. And he said, I must go and speak to my people in my own village, but I did not go. I did not feel as if I could go speak unto my own people. I did not go to my people, but I was troubled and ill at ease. And one Sunday as I sat in the chapel, I could not fix my mind upon the service. For before my eyes, I saw in a vision the schoolroom in Langour where I lived. And there sitting in rows before me, I saw my old companions and all the young people. And I saw myself addressing them. I shook my head impatiently and strove to drive away this vision. But it always came back and I heard a voice in my inward ear as plain as anything saying, Go and speak to these people. And for a long time, I would not. But the pressure became greater and greater, and I could hear nothing, uh, nothing of the sermon. Then at last, I could resist no longer, and I said, Well, Lord, if it's thy will, I will go. Then instantly, the vision vanished, and the whole chapel became filled with light so dazzling that I could faintly see the minister in the pulpit. And between him and me, the glory is if the light of the sun in heaven. And deranged, yeah. or I'll tell you this right here, you're just emotionally deceived, and wore out in your spirit. When he talks about meeting God face to face, but that, that's just the tip of the spear. Yes. If, you, uh, if I had time to read the testimony that he gives and everything else, that's why I believe that Evan Roberts, after that year when the revival started dying out, because the emotionalism in that area started dying out, once it started dying out, he entered in such a deep depression that for two decades, yea, almost three decades, you never hear of him again, and he joins up. Was it Jesse Penn Lewis? Jesse Penn Lewis. Jesse Penn Lewis. That's right. That's right. And you know what? She was at the Keswick Convention. Absolutely. And, I, and she led him astray unlike any other demon could. And we we will have to pick up on part two of that, brother. Um Folks, if, if this certainly and has been an enlightening thing to uh, us sitting here this morning as far as uh, the Welsh Revival, Evan Roberts, and certainly, we, Brother Carl, we haven't even touched the surface of this yet for sure. But um, these, these programs for Weed Among the Tares is for the purpose of bringing to light just based on, number one, scriptural information scriptural and doctrinal information from the scriptures and to show these things for what they really are and uh, and i trust that what you have heard this morning uh has been a help and a blessing to you and if you're listening to this podcast later on then certainly you can uh pass it along to uh to whomever because these are subjects that need to be dealt with with regard to christian history and uh, and sound doctrine. Well, thank you for joining us this morning on Wheat Among the Tears. Brother Carl Baker, thank you for being with us this morning. Delighted, my brother.
It has been our pleasure to be with you this morning and trust that you will pray for us here. And may the Lord, may the Lord bless you and have a wonderful day in 